The Christian life begins with a step of faith. Whether one is young, old, religious, or not, the Christian life begins with a step of faith. When the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, he met the Lord, and there he took a step of faith. His life was radically changed. He went from persecuting the church to preaching the gospel, but it all began with a step of faith. When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, Jesus spoke to him about being born again and what it meant to be born again. And there Nicodemus took a step of faith and his life was changed. He was born into the family of God. If you are a Christian, it began with a step of faith. For me, it came in vacation Bible school, and I suppose that's one of the reasons that I'm always interested in vacation Bible school. I had been brought up in a Christian home. I knew the gospel. I knew what it meant. But there in vacation Bible school, the pastor gave an invitation asking if we would like to commit our lives to Jesus Christ, and I did. So there was that step of faith. The Christian life begins with a step of faith. And then it becomes a walk of faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul on numerous occasions refers to the Christian journey, the Christian life, as being a walk. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Ephesians 4.17, walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love. So the Bible then says that we become a part of God's family with a step of faith, and then we walk in faith. To walk insinuates progress, that I am making progress in the journey. And it indicates destination, that I am going somewhere. Well, today we continue our study from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And in this letter, in the portion we are looking at today, Paul exhorts them concerning their journey of faith, their walk of faith. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1 as we pick up where we left off last time. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification." Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, 
to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So in these verses, Paul is exhorting the Thessalonian believers in their walk with Christ. There are several things I want you to see with me as we look at these verses. First of all, he exhorted them to sanctification. Now you see there in verse number three, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then as you look back in verse number one, he said, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord. The word request that is used there means to ask. It's a gentle turn. I'm, I'm asking you to do this. But when he used the word exhort, that is a different word. It is a more powerful word. In fact, Barnes wrote, this is the word which is commonly used to denote earnest exhortation. The use of these words here implies that Paul regarded the subject as of great importance. So Paul saw this as very important for the believer. Now, if you are a believer, understand that Paul believed it important that you are sanctified. What does that mean? We hear the word, but what does it mean? Well, we know that generally it means to be set apart. To be sanctified means to be set apart. So then as a believer, I am set apart from the world and I'm set apart to God. So it means to be set apart. But practically, what does it mean? How is it lived out? Paul says, I want you to be sanctified. I exhort you to be sanctified. So practically, how do we live out sanctification? First of all, it means that I live my life so as to please God. Now look at verse number one. Brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. So to be sanctified then means the way I live it out is to please God. Now that is not what was happening with the Greeks. That is not what was happening with the Thessalonians. In fact, Demosthenes, a Greek philosopher, wrote, We keep prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs, and wives for begetting children and faithful guardianship of our homes. Now, it was believed in that society that if a man financially took care of his wife and his children, if he took care of the needs of his family, then it was perfectly acceptable for him then to have other women. That's what Paul is speaking about. He is saying to those who are believers, that's not the way you are to live because that is not pleasing to God. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do you live your life to please? Who are you trying to please with your life? There are some of you would probably say, well, honestly, I'm, I'm living to please myself. Rick Nelson, now you young people won't know Rick Nelson, your grandparents will. I, I grew up a Rick Nelson fan. He was an actor and a singer. And so, but he had a song years ago that said, you can't please everyone, you might as well please yourself. 
But that's the way that some people see life. I, I can't please everyone, so then I will please myself. I will live in such a way that I please myself. William Hazlitt wrote, The soul of a journey is liberty, perfect liberty, to think, feel, do just as one pleases. And there are many people who see life that way, that I am to live my life to please myself. As Dr. Phil would say, and how's that working out for you? Well, we look around and see that, that there are a lot of divorces today because we're living to please ourselves. I hear people say, well, I'm, I'm going to get a divorce. Why? Well, because I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And so that becomes the grounds for divorce. I'm getting a divorce because I'm not happy. I'm living to please myself. Crime? We have a lot of crime today because I want to live to please myself. If, if I see something I want, I take it because that's what pleases me. And if I see something I don't like, then I squash it because it doesn't please me. We even see it in the church, don't we? That there are a lot of people in the church who live their lives to please themselves. And so if the church doesn't do things the way I want them done, then I'm either going to criticize it, I'm going to leave the church, I'm going to do something else. But I live my life to please myself. There are others who would say, well, you know, I, I live to please other people. And when you get into that, then you oftentimes find yourself doing things you don't believe to be right because you want to please someone else. Or saying things you don't really believe because you want to please someone else. And Paul gave us warning concerning that. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 he said, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So there are some who would say, well, I'm living my life honestly to please myself. There are others who would say, well, I live my life to please someone else. Paul says you are to live your life to please God. You ought to walk and please God. In chapter 2, verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Well, to please God... That means then that I am obedient to God. But obedience alone is not sufficient. Jonah was obedient to the Lord. Reluctantly, but he was obedient to the Lord. When God said to Jonah, I want you to go to, to Nineveh and preach to those people. Jonah didn't want to do that, so he went to Tarshish instead. He headed to Tarshish. And you know the story as to how he took a ride in the belly of a fish and so forth. And, and he ended up going to Nineveh doing what the Lord told him to do. But he was hesitant to do so. So I say to you that obedience legalistically or obedience alone is not sufficient. Folks, it is when we are obedient to God because we love God that that is satisfying. Is that not true, parents? I mean, when you tell your children to do something and they do what you tell them to do just because they have to, you're bigger than they are. That's not real satisfying to you. But when they are obedient to you because they respect you and love you, then that brings satisfaction. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, it means, to, it means that I am to please God. It means I'm to live my life to obey God in verse number 2. 
For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification is being obedient to God regarding sexual issues. You might need to go and read this passage of Scripture, understanding the background that is there and so forth because of what we deal with today. And we take sexual immorality so lightly. Do do you know that, that sexual immorality is a sin against God? And in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. That's how serious God considered it. Sexual immorality is not only a sin against God, it is a sin against others. It is not a victimless crime. You know, consenting adults and all that stuff that you hear about. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he sinned against Bathsheba. He, con- he sinned against her husband. He sinned against his family. He sinned against the nation. So sexual sin then is a sin against God. It is a sin against others. And the Bible says, interestingly, it is a sin against your own body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18... Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means that I live my life to please God. It means that I live my life in obedience to God, and as a result, I glorify God in verse number 4. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So sanctif- uh, living a life of sanctification then pleases God. But what does it mean when he says possess his own vessel? You are to possess your own vessel. What does that mean? I tend to agree with Barnes who wrote, the word vessel was used by the later Hebrews to denote a wife as the vessel of her husband. The word body, however, accords more naturally with the usual signification of the word. And as the apostle was giving directions to the whole church, embracing both sexes, it is hardly probable that he confined his direction to those who had wives. The injunction then is that we should preserve the body pure. And sexual purity glorifies God. That's the reason that we recognize those people who've been married 50 years and more in the church because they give a tremendous and a beautiful testament. It is a beautiful testimony of their commitment. You see, folks... Sexual impurity, sexual sin is accepted in society today, but the Bible says that it is a sin against God, it is a sin against others, it is a sin against your own body. When we are sexually pure, the Bible says then we glorify God and escape judgment in verse number 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Now, what is the Christian's position? I mean, if you're saved, you've trusted the Lord. What is your position with Christ? Well, we know the answer to that. We are not condemned. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the Bible says that if you are saved, if you are Christian, that you are not under condemnation. You are not condemned. But that does not give you a license to sin. See? 
I, I believe in the security of the believer. I believe that very strongly. But believing in the security of the believer does not give me a license to sin. The scripture says in Galatians 6, 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, how can we live this way, sanctified? Look at verse number 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the, the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It is the Holy Spirit who enables you. Do you want to live this way, a sanctified life? That is the exhortation, that you are to be sanctified. That you are to live a sanctified life. How do you do it? With the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have been saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you and he gives you the power that is necessary to live this way. So there is an exhortation to sanctification, but then there's an exhortation to brotherly love in verse number 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So Paul now transitions from holiness to love which is natural. Ladies and gentlemen, just as it is natural for birds to fly and fish to swim, it is natural for Christians to love. It is just as natural for Christians to love. You know that there are four different Greek words for love. We, we love everything. You know, we have one word. We love everything. I mean, I love these deacons down here. I love these flowers over here. I love lunch. Uh, you know, we love everything. Greeks had four words that are translated love. One was eros, which is the word from which we get the word erotic. It speaks of a sensual love. And then there's the, the word storge. That is a, a word that speaks of family love, the kind of love that, a, that a, a parents have for their children, for instance, storge. And then there is agape. That speaks of an unconditional love. That is always the word that is used when it speaks of God's love for you. It is always agape, which is unconditional. In other words, when God says, I love you, he says, I love you not because of who you are, but because of who I am. His love for you is unconditional. It is not based on who you are. It is based on who he is. So that is agape. The word, however, that is used here is philia. And this word speaks of a brotherly love. Barnes wrote, all true Christians are taught to love those who bear the image of their Savior. And didn't Jesus say something like, the world will know that you are my disciples because you fuss and fight? Because you love each other. The world will know that you are my disciples because you love each other. And the Trinity instructs us into love. God the Father... We love because he first loved us. God the Son, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. God the Holy Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. And so the Bible says then that we are to love each other, and love is a plentiful commodity. Look at verse number 10. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia... But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. One of the things that I have uh, noticed through life is that there are some people who see love like being a pie. 
And if I give a slice to somebody, then that's less for me. They see love not as being plentiful, but being scarce. So if you give love to someone, then that's less for me. That becomes a problem within families. For instance, a boy and a girl meet, they fall in love, and they get married. And then the parent happens to believe, no, now if he loves her, then that's less love for me. And it becomes a problem in the family. It can also work in the opposite direction. A boy and a girl meet, they fall in love, they get married. And maybe she thinks, whoa, if he loves his parents, then that's less love for me. Or if she loves her parents, then that is less love for me. That's one of the reasons I love my daughter-in-law, Emily. Emily loves her family. In fact, she's at the beach with her family right now. She loves her family. And therefore, she thinks it's natural for Eric to love his family. And it gives a tremendous amount of freedom. See, what he is saying is that I exhort you to love. And love is plentiful. It's not like a pie. I love Linda with all of my heart as my wife. I love my daughter with all my heart as my daughter. I love my son with all my heart as my son and so forth. You don't diminish love by giving it away. And that's what Paul is saying. It is plentiful. Excel still more. And then Paul exhorts us to outsiders in verse number 12. So that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The word outsider speaks of those outside the church. So Paul exhorts us to harmony, which is within the church, and then honesty, which is outside the church. All right, now, how are you supposed to relate to those outside the church? Throw rocks at them, right? I mean, get a club and go, and how are we supposed to relate to those people who are outside the church, who don't share our, our commitment? This is interesting to me. Paul says, now here's the way you relate to those outside the church. Mind your own business. Look at verse number 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Barnes said to attend to their own concerns without interfering with the affairs of others. He said that they were to lead a quiet life, which means orderly, peaceful, living in the practice of the calm virtues of life. So Paul was saying to the Thessalonians, how do you relate to those outside the church? Lead a quiet life and tend to your own business, which some of them were not doing. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, he wrote, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You know, the church can be, now don't tell anybody this, and I'm not talking about this church, but the church can foster gossip. And prayer meetings can do that. You know, pray for Brother John. You know he's got a drinking problem. Pray for Sister Sally. You know, her husband's running around on her. 
And so we can use prayer requests as a time, if we're not careful, we can use prayer requests as a time for gossip. I, I heard the story, I liked it, about three preachers became, they became good friends, and so then they went out fishing one time, and they're sitting out there, and as they're out fishing, they've been friends for a long time. They said, why don't we have a time of confession, and each one of us confess what is our secret sin? And so they decided that they would do that. And the, and the, uh, the Catholic priest who was with them, he said, well, he said, my secret sin is that, is that I gamble. He said, I like to gamble. Sometimes I'll sneak off to Las Vegas. He said, I might lose some money there. He said, but I, that's my sin. He said, I, I gamble. And then there was a Presbyterian pastor, and they said, well, what's your secret sin? And he said, well, he said, you know, I have a problem with lust. He said, I do everything I can to not do that, but I, I just have a problem in that area. Then they turned to the Baptist who didn't say anything and said, now, what's, what's your secret sin? He said, gossip. <laughs> Paul said, lead a quiet life, tend to your own business and work with your own hands. Because as we work with our own hands, we provide for our own needs. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Isn't that interesting? If you don't provide for your own, he says you're worse than an unbeliever. Provide for yourself that you might have to give to those who have need. And then in verse number 12, he says, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Folks, when we live this way, the gospel receives a good report. Teddy Roosevelt was a cattle rancher early in his life. And one day he and one of his ranch hands had gone out for a ride as they did. They came across a stray calf. And the ranch hand got off and was about to put the Roosevelt brand on the calf. And Teddy Roosevelt said to him, pack it in and get your pay and leave. Anyone who would steal for me would steal from me. The Bible says that we are to live honorable lives to those outside. And therefore, we are not in any need. So Paul tells us how the Christian should walk. We are exhorted to sanctification that we might please God and escape judgment. He exhorts us to brotherly love. It is natural for Christians to love each other, and there's no shortage of love. He exhorts us to outsiders that we are to live properly before them. But it all begins with a step of faith. That is the Christian walk, but it begins when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord. My friend, have you done that? Have you invited Jesus to be your Lord? That is the step of faith. That's what Paul did. That's what Nicodemus did. That's what I did. That's what others have done. Have you committed your life to Christ? The invitation today, I encourage you to do so if you've not. And if you have, then you live your Christian life in a way that honors him. Our gracious Father, we come to a time of invitation and ask your blessings upon it. Father, for those who have never committed to Jesus, I pray that they might. Lord, I just pray that you'll bless this time in Christ's name. Amen.